All right. Welcome, 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 everybody. All right, tonight's going to be fun. Uh, I want to I talk to you a little bit about BJ and, and give you my bio, because I, uh, I've known BJ for, at this point, 20 years. And um, as, uh, as you heard in the introduction, he's both an academic, but he's also deeply practical. And this is something that always fascinated me, because you take deep psychology and then make it applicable to everyday people like all of us. And he's worked with over 40,000 people, coaching them on tiny habits. He also has taught at Stanford. One of his uh, students was the co-founder of Instagram and many other Silicon Valley luminaries. So I think we have a real privilege uh, of being able to hear from BJ. Uh, so BJ, welcome. Thank you, Remy. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for coming. Ramit and I planned this, though he's in charge of making sure we get through the program. <laughs> and we want to make it as practical and useful for you and also insightful. So it's the balance of helping you understand how behavior works, uh, but also how you can apply it in your own life, everyday life. And uh, we're going to be a little bit unconventional here. We were going to do a game show kind of format. Then we talked about doing like truth or dare and strip poker slash something else. But Ramit has a reputation to protect, me not so much. <laughs> so uh, we're going to tone it back a little bit. But I did want to say a few things about Ramit that you may not know. When Ramit was, man, I think you're a sophomore at Stanford. You come up to me outside my lab and you say, I want to do this and this and this. Like I want to learn how to put things on the grocery store shelf so people buy it. And I'm like, that's not what I do. He's like, oh, what do you do? And I said something, he's like, yeah, that's what I want to do. And so he joined up to my lab really early. And one thing I don't get, so we're going to do a little bio background here, like in a way that you wouldn't read on Wikipedia or whatever. And you complain about this a lot, but Ramit was very thin. And that's awesome, but you always talk about that as a bad thing. No, it's not, it's not good for guys. Really? When you, especially when you're a sophomore. You're Nobody like a me. skinny... Skinny, not thin. So I oh, was a skinny, skinny Indian guy. Okay. And I just, I, I said it as if it was a joke. And then later I realized I don't really want it to be a joke. Like, I don't want to oh. be skinny. Um, and I thought I was eating a lot. It turns out I actually wasn't eating well, that much. Well, he got a trainer, yeah. beefed up. And also, <laughs> his first financial seminars he did, like he was like still a student planning these financial seminars. And how many people showed up? Zero. Zero. <laughs> Okay, now he has like a million people a month listening to you or something like that. Yeah, that was really depressing because I was trying, I was, I felt like, yes, I have the answer. And then I spent more time convincing people to come to my free seminar than anything else. And that I was like, sounds familiar. This doesn't, yeah, <laughs> it was so frustrating. So I'm glad that I stuck with it, but that's a painful time when you're starting out trying to get your ideas out there. Okay, got it. A little more pain. Um, Ramit, uh, let's see, more college things. Um, it was really I think we could wrap it right there. I think that's good about college. What do you okay, say, BJ? <laughs> fast forward, fast forward. One thing you may not know about Ramit is he got married recently to a wonderful woman, Cass, who is here. Cass, raise your hand. Yay. Wow. And one thing Cass does, and if you don't follow her on Instagram, you really should, she remakes your wardrobe. So you have just, the, obviously she didn't work with me. I, I need your help so desperately. She's super fun on Instagram. And they got married uh, just in Tahoe at this beautiful place. And Ramit rode a horse into his wedding. Yeah, rode a horse, which I didn't know you could ride a horse. Well, all the Indian people in here are like, yeah, of course he rode a horse. <laughs> that's normal. To me, that was normal growing up. I was like, oh yeah, everybody comes in on a horse. But that's part of our tradition. And so... We come in on the horse, and I, I brought my nephews with me. You know, each one rotated off, and we have everyone dancing around us, and then the bride's family greets us. So okay. it's very traditional. And let me keep going here. So Ramit is a great dancer, and you don't know this because I didn't tell you. He was really busy at the wedding. He went to, like, his aunts and uncles and your relatives, who I didn't know exactly who they were, and he was so kind to them, and he included them, and you dance with the little kids. I mean, he was like the perfect gentleman at his wedding, and I was so impressed with that. Thank you. I was Thank you like, for being there. Man. Thank you. Well, um, it's a privilege to be able to be up here with one of my teachers, because it's pretty rare, you know, to, to still stay connected to someone who's taught me so much, to invite you to my wedding, to see you on the dance floor was amazing. 
And uh, it was awesome. It was awesome. And then yeah, to I be did able on the Today Show, I'll do it here. <laughs> <laughs> and to be able to take what you've done and and share it here is it's a real gift. So um, I want to know, like I I prepared some questions just because I'm genuinely fascinated, and I've never gotten to ask you this, but I want to start there, and then we'll see where the room takes us. So BJ, my question for you is, what does behavior change look like at your level? For someone who understands basically social psychology, who understands behavior change and has been studying this for years, how does it work at your level? What's something you've changed or added yeah. recently? Well, let me give you two answers. And I'm going to be frank here and don't hold it against me that I'll be frank about how it feels and so on. Like I've been practicing a lot. And in the course of things, I've made tons and tons and tons of mistakes. But you remember what it felt like when you didn't know how to drive and you get behind a car and you're like, Ugh. and now if you get, need to get from point A to point B, you just get and do it. That's kind of what it feels like on my side when it comes to behavior change. Like most people's like, how do I get this done? Well, once you practice and have the methods and approaches, it's like, oh, it's like getting in the car and just going somewhere. You don't have to think too much about it. It's kind of instinctive. It's natural. Um, so that's one way to think about it. The other way is, I guess, more analytical. You look around, like you're at the airport, and you're noticing how everything is designed to change your behavior. Like, oh, that's a prompt. Oh, that makes it easier. Oh, they're motivating you. Oh, this is what's going on. So it's like you look at the world in, through a lens where you're seeing how things are deliberately designed or poorly designed to get you to change behavior. So let, give us an example. example. You're here in New York. What, uh, you, I've been seeing your Instagram stories recently. I know. I'm it's, so bad on Instagram. Great. I'm no, terrible. it's great. I'm terrible. It's great. And I see you analyzing like the Apple stand. or some, Tell us about what you've seen that you've noticed is trying to change your behavior. Well, let's see. Um, I mean... I don't want to get too technical, but I'm really trying to parse on in my mind the difference between a label and a prompt. So it says exit right there. Is that telling me to exit now, or is it a label, right? And so it's kind of just a label. And there's something in between. There's a continuous variable. So in my mind, I'm not going to rush to example and say, oh, here's what the farm market did. I'm always trying to solve a problem. Like conceptually, I don't yet, what I did on Instagram for the first time is, you know, the fire alarms that say pull in case of emergency. Well, I'm calling that now a conditional prompt. It's a prompt because it says pull, but under certain conditions. So it was just when I was trying to get better at Instagram, and I'm still terrible, thank you for flattering me, um, that, okay, that's a kind of prompt, but it's not a normal prompt, so it's conditional. So I thought, oh, I'll call it a conditional prompt, put it out there, see how people respond. Sometimes if you can just name something or categorize it, then you can see it around more and more. And with time, I think, you know, my behavior model is, you know, behavior happens when motivation, ability, and prompt come together at the same time. But there's probably more discovery to be had in some of these areas. So what does it feel like? It's, it's, it's nice because I'll give a quick example of a habit that I formed. Uh, so we live in Maui part of the time, and I surf in the mornings. And you know I'm 56, and I don't want to get hurt surfing because you know if you get cut or injured, you can't get in the waves, and that's bad because I'm addicted to surfing. We can talk about addiction later. But, so I think, okay, I'm going to get in the hot tub every morning to loosen up. So I go out to the hot tub first morning. It's about, what, Denny, 4.30 or 5 probably. And there's no virtue in me getting up early. I just can't sleep any longer. So it's not like any virtue. So I get up. I go out to the hot tub. And the first time I get in the hot tub, I look up, and there's a shooting star. And I'm like, oh. Now, I don't think it was a sign from heaven, but what I know is what wires in a habit is the emotion you feel, especially when you do it the first time. So as I got in and there was a start, it's like, oh, there it is. It's going to wire and my brain just rewired. I'm going to want to do this every morning, which I did for about two weeks. I would get in the hot tub and soak and stretch and float on my back, look at the stars, until one day, <laughs> which happened eight days ago, something like that. I'm floating on my back in the dark looking at the stars and just chilling and stretching. And then I feel this crawling on my chest. And I look down, and there's a rat that was drowning in the hot tub. And he's crawling on me. And I'm like, ah! 
And I freak out for like three seconds and I was like, that habit just got broken. Yeah. That just got broken. <laughs> so that's what it feels like. Wow. Okay. The, the emotion part, like you're never going to forget what that little... I saved him though. I scooped him out and I threw him in the bushes. But it was terrible. I need therapy, I think. <laughs> I, I'm serious. I was like... You know, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about emotion and how it causes behavior change and how it's, it's highly correlated. And that was something that I, I don't think I would have cared about that 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Me neither. Me neither. Yeah. And yet it now is much more profound to me where I think, uh, like I just got back from a long trip to India and Japan and a lot of the places I went to, I felt a sense of awe. And that is a feeling that day to day, I don't feel it that often, even though I live here. You just get used to your surroundings. But putting yourself in a different situation and seeing something that's either huge or, or intimately small or just beautiful, that was a feeling that I don't feel that often, but I never forget it. And so when, you, when I was reading the book and you connected, for example, waking up and saying, I'm going to have a great day. Ten years ago, it would have been fluff to me. Today, it has a lot more meaning. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, maybe share some examples. So like you, 10 years ago, even though we changed our lab's name to the Behavior Design Lab about 10 years ago, eight years ago, I would have no idea that really the central, the central mission of my book, I think, is to change how people experience emotions, especially welcoming positive emotions, being able to generate them on demand, and welcoming positive emotions and not resisting them. Because that is the positive emotion, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, is what rewires the brain and creates the habit. It's not repetition that creates habits. That's completely misleading. It correlates with habits, it does not create them. So people writing those headlines are confusing correlation with causation. And what causes it is the emotion. So when you do a behavior like get in the hot tub and see a shooting star and you're like, your brain goes, what happened? I'm going to do this more often, right? So it wires the habit in. Um, and as I, I stumbled across it, I'll just, I mean, that's what happened. So I tell the story a little bit in the book, and I won't go through all of it, but there was a time about 2010 when things were tough for me. I mean, uh, a nephew of mine had died from a drug overdose not so long ago. My sister and my family were reeling from that. Just a uh, startup we had done had gone under, and we we're still cleaning up the pieces of that, and we'd lost a lot of our life savings to that. A big, huge conference at Stanford was coming up, and I was in charge of it, and 350 people were coming, and it was just, I would lay awake at night just like, what did I sign up for? And then I... And this is in some ways is the generous, gen, the, the beginning of tiny habits. So I'm standing there in the mirror and I decided I wanted to learn to floss as a habit. And I'd already known scale it back so it's super tiny because I looked at my own behavior model and I thought, oh, if it's really, really tiny, if it's easy to do, it's right here. And that means my motivation can be higher or low. If it's hard, it's here and motivation drops, you won't do it. So I was flossing one tooth in the context of really being overwhelmed. And I remember just looking in the mirror and going, okay, BJ, good for you. You got one thing done right today. If everything else is terrible, and it could be victory, you did one thing right, good for you. And that was the beginning of the celebration technique. And I noticed that made a difference, and I did it the next day. And then, and then I started expanding it. It's like that thing of saying good for you, good for me, makes a difference, and I played around with some habits where I did and some I didn't, and they wired in faster, and I started teaching it. I didn't know why it worked. I just knew the technique worked, and it was later when I started digging into it. What's going on when I say, yeah, good for me, way to go, victory, smile, woohoo, whatever, makes you feel happy and positive. Turns out it's emotion. And the particular emotion that uh, that celebration, what we're focusing on, is a feeling of success. There's lots of different emotions like pleasure and you know pride and things like that, but it's the feeling of success that you can fire off by going, yes, or good for me. It did not have a name for this emotion. 
So a year ago, there was no name. So uh, as I was reading all this stuff and calling my academic friends and making sure that I wasn't wrong in this, um, they basically, and there's one woman in particular who's one of the leading scholars on emotions, and she's a big fan of using specific words for emotions, and if we don't have one, come up with one. So I called her, and it's like, Lisa, what do you think? She's like, great. You know, I don't know what the word is here for this. Name it. And the name that, I did some research and some testing, and the name for that emotion you feel when you're successful um, is shine. So that's what we're calling it. That feeling of success inside is shine. So if you can do a behavior like drink water and feel shine as you're doing it or immediately after, so your brain associates that behavior with the feeling of success, then that wires in the habit. The more intense the emotion, the faster the habit wires in. Okay, so I, I hear so many things in that. One of the things you just offhandedly mentioned that I'm thinking, now I have to think about this is, I didn't know why it worked, but I knew it worked. And how many people in here have had something like that in your life? You don't know why it works, but it just works. And if someone asks you why does it work, you sort of, you know, you either make it up or you just kind of get embarrassed, but you probed and you went yeah. deeper on it. That's powerful. That's examining your behavior like a scientist. So I love that. And I bet if all of us went home tonight and thought about what's something in our life that works, we don't know why, we'd probably be able to deconstruct it. Oh, wow, when does my house end up clean? When I have someone coming over. Bam, throw parties. So there you go. So, <laughs> so, so that was interesting. And then this, this part about emotions, and um, in the book you write, people are going to do what they want to do. Very profound. Sometimes people write me on Instagram or email. So I teach money, business, et cetera. And they go, that's the book, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. It is awesome. I gave this to my entire family at our family reunion this year. I thought they were, they loved it. They, Thank you. And my brother is Ramit's biggest fan. He said that. Tell Thank me, Ramit, you. I'm your biggest so fan. So this is a psychology book disguised as a money book from a lot of the things that I learned at Stanford. And... People will write me and they'll go, I've been following you for eight years and like I really want to earn more money. I want to start a business, but like I just can't get around to it. And I ask them a couple questions and then I say to them sometimes, not always, depending on their response, I say, maybe you just don't want to start a business. And then they go completely silent. You're right. Yeah. And then I they won't. say, and then a lot of them say, wow, you're making me really uncomfortable with what you're saying right now. Because no one in our day-to-day -day ever talks to us like that, right? Most of the people around us will say what we want to hear because it's polite. So I think you can also be polite but be honest. And I think when you clarified in the book, and I do this in my material as well, you know what, if you don't want to do it, it doesn't matter how sophisticated and beautiful and cool and prestigious it is. If you fundamentally do not want to do it, you're not going to do it. I was in denial around that because my earlier work was around persuasive technology, which like, oh, we can persuade people to do stuff. And I used to say, you know, you could get anyone to do anything. I could get the Pope to do X, Y, Z if I just had the right baby steps. But over, as you look at what really works in the real world, the only thing that works, you can get people to do things one time or for a limited period of time in tricky ways. But the only thing that works in the long term is helping people do what they already want to do. And I resisted that. I saw it, and I resisted it for like 10 years. And finally, I was like, no, stop resisting. Just you know, own it, yeah. label it. So it's my maxim number one, help people do what they already want to do. And it applies to your habits. Figure out habits you want and design for those. Don't try to get yourself to do habits you don't want to do. I can't even think of a single example of my life or anybody's life where you created a habit of something, a true habit of something you don't want to do. I can't even think of a single example. And there are times where those habits, like I think life flows. And if you have something really busy happening, if, for example, if you're um, going to become a new parent, it's unlikely you're going to start a new business that same year. It's possible, but it's maybe unlikely. And so would you be lying to yourself if you said, I really need to like subscribe to 50 email newsletters and start a business? Why not simply say, that's not going to happen this year. I'm going to be really candid, and I'm going to put that aside, and then I'll do it next year. But yeah. this year is going to be about family and X, Y, Z. And don't beat yourself up along the way. I mean, that's part of the mission of this book, 
you know, one of the themes for those of you who have read it or skimmed it is you change best by feeling good, mm. not by feeling bad. Wait, so how do people feel bad when you talk about the, well, what do they say to well, themselves? Let, let me build on your point a little bit. So if somebody thinks, oh, I really should be going to the gym. Oh, I don't want to. I'll sign up for the gym. I don't go to the gym. I don't have willpower. I'm a terrible person. No. If you don't want to go to the gym, that's fine. Find what you want to do and create a habit and double down, triple down on what you want to do. And like to Ramit's point, there may be a time, three months, six months, three years from now, where you do want to go to the gym and then you'll do it then. So just... If you don't want to do things you think you should be doing, that's fine. Go with what you want to do, the positive things you want to do, and make those habits. I want to do a poll around the room because I want to dive into this self-talk concept. It's very powerful, and it's directly related to habits. So how many people here have trouble sticking with habits? Okay. Uh, how many people here are uh, not great at math. I'm putting my hand up. This is for real. Um, and how many people have trouble managing their money? Okay, good. So we could, we could do this in many different domains. <clears throat> Some of the words that I hear people tell me, because they're very honest, and, and actually they're honest differently by different channel. So they're most honest on email and Instagram, because it's private. They're super dishonest on Twitter. Is that right? The same people sometimes write wow. me on Twitter and say the opposite on email. And I'm like, dude, I just saw your comment. You said the opposite. Over the, they're, they're like, oh, yeah, I can't say that publicly. So you have to understand. Anyway, this is an interesting insight I've learned. So I value higher what people say privately. And the way that people who struggle with a habit describe themselves is heartbreaking. They'll say things like, I'm horrible with money. I've never been good at it. Every dollar I make, I spend it. Can't keep any of it here. And I'm thinking, if you said that about one of your friends, you would never talk like that because they wouldn't be your friend anymore. And yet we talk about that. It's a classic therapy concept of self-talk. And if you start from a position of saying, I'm horrible, I've never been able to succeed, yeah. then you're not well, going to feel good changing the behavior. Yeah, and I, I don't have the exact quotes. I have them somewhere. I don't have them in my head. But the thing that might be surprising or might sound really familiar is the sense of, oh, I tried to do this and I can't. I've tried. There's this kind of, how do I describe this? They convey a sense of something is fundamentally broken in me. I'm just broken. I'm made wrong. I can't do this. And that, now talk about heartbreaking, that breaks my heart because people buy into products and programs where it's like, oh, you can do this and this and this, and it doesn't work for them and they blame themselves rather than saying, oh, it's a terribly designed program. And that is, you know what, I, I started getting really grumpy about this in, at my comp, I would do conferences at Stanford and talks, and just say, look, if you, and a lot of them were creating products and programs in the health space. And I'd get up and say, look, if you design an intervention or a solution and somebody fails on it, that's not a neutral event for that person. You have damaged that person. You have set them back. You have made them less likely to, you've made them less capable of changing and you've made them less likely to try in the future. So don't, don't do that. I mean, and I guess I could do that in my role at Stanford because I wasn't looking for consulting. I didn't care if the industry people hated me. I just felt like I needed to call it out like I saw it, just the truth, you know? Both of us... Uh I say the same about budgets and about the advice about cutting back on $3 lattes. And it actually is quite damaging to people because they scrimp and pinch and use everything they've got to cut back on $3. They, they give up after seven days. Who wants to wake up without the simple joy of a cup of coffee? And then they think to themselves, oh, I can never manage my money. <laughs> I'm like... This like isn't even in the right universe themselves. of what you should yeah. be spending your time on. This yeah. is a $3 question. You should be asking $30,000 questions. And so you are the, the industry does a disservice when they focus people on the wrong thing and they have them fail. So it's a double whammy. I would rather have them pick something really small, floss one tooth, learn what that means, and then start growing from Well, them. and here's how it works. So we're kind of getting to the, not the end of the hour, but you know, the secret sauce of tiny habits is this. 
And I'm sure you see it, you said it in so many words. I'll, I'll say another, and I'll use flossing one tooth as an example. You know, that's one of the habits I started with. When somebody does a new behavior, a new habit, and they feel successful, it can even be on a something super tiny. They start thinking about themselves differently. Their identity starts shifting. So rather than being, I'm the person that can't follow through, I'm the person that can't change, they're like, I'm the person that takes care of my teeth. I'm the person that makes decisions, good decisions about my health. I'm the kind of person who can change. And that emerges within a handful of days. In the five day, how many coaches do I have here in Tiny Habits certified? So all the coaches have seen this and it's kind of like, you know, at first it's like, really? You're starting to change your identity within five days, but the data shows that. And the key isn't that they're doing tiny habits per se, it's they are seeing evidence, I actually am doing this habit and I feel successful and that feeling of success is the thing that shifts their identity. So then as they start thinking, I'm the kind of person who can change, or I'm the kind of person who you know, makes, uh, has healthy habits, then all the other opportunities, they more and more behave consistently with that new identity. So you don't have to design you know, 20 or 50 habits. You have to just get a one or a handful wired in and feel successful, and then it has this ripple effect where they shift in their identity. So you get this, um, and I didn't, <laughs> it, first two years of teaching tiny habits and looking at the data, I didn't understand, I would see about 18% of the people every week would report, um, about 70%, 70 some odd, report making some additional change in their life besides the three habits they're working on in five days. And then I asked the question, you know, did you make small change or big change? And about 18% on average report making a big change. And I was like, what is that? All you're doing is flossing one tooth and pouring a glass of water and putting on your walking shoes. And, and as it turns out, I was puzzled by that. Now I know the mechanism. And by mechanism, it's like what happens to cause it. And it is that identity shift. Once people shift and see themselves in a new way. Let's just take tidying up. I'm the kind of person who tidies, and maybe the habit's just tidying one thing after they start the coffee maker. Then as they see themselves as a pr kind of person who tidies, come Thursday, fourth day of the program, they're tidying their whole bathroom, they're telling their husband, let's go tidy the garage. So you get this huge, um, I call it a springboard moment. You get this breakthrough where they go do big stuff that surprised me once in my data, but now I get what's going on. It's that shift in identity. Yeah, that's powerful. <clears throat> We're going to open it up for questions in just a few minutes, so if you've got them, this is a good time to think about them. Um, systems. I'm going to put you on the spot, Rami. Okay. Ask you some. So you have, first of all, your products and your programs are great. Thank you. I'll be honest. Oh, 2011 or so, when you were rolling them out, it's like... I'm not so sure. And then I started doing some stuff with you. It was the BehaviorCon conference. I think that turned me. I was like, Ramit's stuff is really good. It's not like hucksterism. It's quality stuff. And then I started paying attention, and you test everything, and you test everything. And um, I've actually bought a couple of your programs. For oh, I people. didn't even know that. Yeah, the people that work closely to me, it's like, I'm signing you up because I know by giving you this program, you're going to do better work for me. Thank you. And your stuff's super high quality. How... and. I've worked on tiny habits, iterate, iterate, test to make it better and better. You've done the same. How do you know when you're done with like, boom, this program's ready to go out the door? <laughs> well, there's a, funny, there's a funny thing that happens in our product design process where we have um, different product developers who are good at different parts. And I would say that the product design group are true masters of human behavior. We have to be good because if we, do, first of all, people are paying us thousands of dollars for these programs, and these are consumers. And if we're not good, they can get a refund of all of their money. So if we're not good, then we don't put food on uh, our team's plates. And so we, uh, we make it challenging for ourselves. We test it extensively. We usually test it over months, sometimes years. We know it's good when I look at it and I say, first, we're all depressed when we start. We're like, there's no way we're ever going to do this. It's kind of like writing a book. There's no way. And then it starts, we see a couple glimmers, we have some nomenclature that we create and we test it and people start to say, oh yeah. Then the next step is, 
we've seen basically every situation, every scenario. Nothing surprises us. As we test, we get another 500 uh, piece of feedback. We're like, yep, 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 we can categorize it. The final point where we know it's ready is where I say, you know what? This product is too good. We should double the price. And then their team's like, no, 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 no. We already have the price set. We got to roll it out. That's when we know it's, it's ready to go. But we get it wrong sometimes. In fact, uh, uh, 18 months ago, we rolled out a program. And within the first two days, we knew that there was a real problem. We had some of our best customers, uh, who, students and customers who had told us, like, I've bought like six-year programs, and this is like not IWT quality. We had refund rates that are way higher. We had people just going through all these videos super quick. We could see their customer behavior and then just sending a refund request. So we pulled the whole thing off the market, and we spent the last uh, 17 to 18 months completely redoing it. And we just, uh, we're going to be rolling it out again, but it's done top to bottom, completely done. So from a brand perspective, we don't want to put something out that's not amazing. But from a behavioral change perspective, if they're not going to get true benefit from it, then they're not going to stick with us. So that's a deal breaker. Good for you. Okay, I'm going to get personal now. I'm going to ask you some questions about your own behavior okay. and have you share techniques. Okay. And you can ask me about my behavior, like behavior challenges and share techniques. Um, talk about a habit that you had, maybe not an addiction or maybe so, but a bad habit, and how you got rid of it. What would you do? Um, I'll tell you a couple. One that I still have. So I bite my nails. Maybe I can get some advice from you today. I haven't solved that one. There's an article in a magazine. Uh, what's the magazine? It just came out. Anyway, keep going with me. Okay, Sorry. so that's my bad one. Um, my, uh, my next one, I have a bad habit that I've just accepted. So I thought it was a bad habit, but now I just label it as a great habit. And that is I wake up in the morning and I scroll Instagram. So everybody tells you it's wrong, and I'm like, it's no, bad. it's awesome. It's awesome. I wake it's up, awesome. <laughs> I spend 15 minutes scrolling. I'm like, this is great. I'm so happy. Okay. And then, okay. then I get up. So I don't, I don't listen to anybody who tells me it's bad. It's great. Um, but a, a bad habit used to be that I would not go to the gym because uh, I, was, I wanted to go in the morning. I was really ambitious at night. Okay, I'm going to go in the morning. And then, and then I wouldn't go. And I beat myself up and I had this self-talk. And then finally I started examining like a scientist. And I realized uh, my closet was in a different room. It was freezing cold in the morning. I didn't want to get up out of bed and run over to the closet and put these on. Simple solution, put the clothes on the floor. Now, the minute my feet touch the floor, there are my clothes, put them on, go. Wow. And it was profound. Okay, but so the, the baby step. Taking the first step, yeah. preparing. Okay, I'm going to point out what his solution did. So on the positive one, not the biting nails, <laughs> he took the behavior and he made it easier to do. So by taking a behavior and making it easier to do, you're much more likely to. So notice as you go this direction on the graphic, there's much more area over the curve. So the easier a behavior is, the more likely you are to do it. So one of the best things you can do to design for a one-time change, and especially for habits, is make it super easy to do. Love that. Um, Shall I ask you another personal okay, question? Okay, let's do it. Okay. So um, when it comes to choices, choices and habits are opposites. Choices are things you deliberate about. Uh, habits are things you do without thinking. So you can imagine it on a spectrum or a continuum. So habits here. Let's go to choices here. When you had to choose between X behavior and Y behavior, how do, how do you tend to make those decisions? Um, first of all, I hardly ever choose it's all I have automated for yeah, you. Yeah, like every Monday is the same. I eat the same meal. Um, like, well, I'm married to a stylist, so that also makes my clothing choice easy. <laughs> but that was a struggle for me every day having to pick what to wear. Yeah. So I really, really try, like the amount of decisions I make on a daily basis is probably t one tenth of what it used to be. Wow. And um, I just, I don't like to make them. So... I want to I want to look nice, I want to eat good food, and I want to have a productive day, but I front loaded all of that months months and ago and then I wake up and it's all like Okay. So a lot of this book is about automating your finances and you've just taken that to the extreme and you've automated your life. 
But but it doesn't mean that like I don't want to be an you automaton. Feel like a robot? No, I don't. Okay. I actually think that you know there's this old phrase, discipline equals freedom, and I think that what that allows me to do is when I'm here with you or with with somebody, I'm fully present because I know that everything else is taken care of. And when I'm traveling, like I don't have to worry about anything because it's taken care of. I can be more spontaneous or in the moment. But I always struggled with uh, doing both of them. Like if I'm if I'm going to be here, yeah. but are we on time? And then I got to run home because this I left the stove on. Like that's my worst nightmare. So I tried to architect my life to avoid that. Okay, so here's how it feels like on the other side. So Ramit, we had a breakfast meeting, and I think my partner Denny and I were on time. But Ramit's sitting there. He's all calm. He's got his coffee. He's got his notebook. He's got you're just chilling, right? And but that's what you're saying is you just automate everything that you're there. You're fully present. Yeah, uh, yeah awesome. and it's not perfect, but I try. I would like to be able to be even more spontaneous. And in order to do that, then I want to make sure that everything else is like working right. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, one more question, then you okay. can ask me personal ones, and then right. we'll take questions. Um, tell about a time when you tried to change your behavior and it didn't work, mm. and you don't have to. It doesn't have to have a happy ending. I mean, we've all. When you try to change your behavior, nobody's perfect. I mean, nobody just nails it. I mean, with practice, you develop the skills of change and you get better. And like I said, it's like getting in a car and driving. Um, but nobody's perfect on that path. I, it's got to be the nails. I mean, it's today. Look at these things. There's nothing they there. They look very clean and tidy. Well, they're clean, but there's, there's no nails there. So okay. And that bothers still, you. Why? Uh, I don't know. You know why it bothers me? I think it's... I think it's I should be able to do this because I can do all this other behavior stuff. And then how do you come to grips with, okay, so you're not doing it. You, seem, you don't seem to be going to therapy over it. How, no. how do you deal with it? So. You know, it's funny. Um, I think when, when you have, at least for me, when I have a problem, it might seem really acute. It might seem like a big problem. But if it stays, then I just, my mind just says, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Instagram. And in that case, I've actually rationalized it to be positive. But in this case, I'm like, I should, you know, I'm a grown man. I should probably not be biting my nails. But it's, I've just sort of hidden it and compartmentalized it away. Well, I'll share one of mine. Yeah. And I'm going to get kind of personal here. In the process of working so hard in my research and teaching and especially writing a book, um, I've done a terrible job, actually, of nurturing my relationships. And not like Facebook relationships or kind of things, but it's like the, the, the people I value, I'm just being honest here, uh, the people you value most, whether they're people that live close to you or your brother and sister and parents. And so, you know, the way I think about it is aspiration, strengthen my most important relationships, behavior, call my mom every day, text, you know, Linda on Monday, text Becky on Wednesday, da, 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 da. And there's been so much of my time and psychic energy that had to go to the book and other things that I've let that slide in my life. And that troubles me because I, I really deeply believe that your happiness is correlated to the quality of your strong, your closest relations. Fortunately, my partner, Denny, and I, Denny, raise your hand. We're kind of, Denny, raise your hand. We're, we're like together 23 hours of the day and we're very, very, very close. But without that, I mean, so that's supported me and it's kept me really happy. But um, it's something I want to reclaim and create habits that will lead to strengthening those important relationships. I just want to say this. First of all, thanks for being so candid about that. I think that's pretty hard to admit. And, um, and yet I think it strikes... Me and I bet everyone in here is pretty honest. We've all gone through times where we haven't been great about our relationships. What I love about what you just pointed at here is that you have a system for getting back to the yeah. goal behavior. I think a lot of people, especially outside of this room, would look at that and say, that's pretty weird. That's pretty weird. Why are you creating a diagram for your friends and your relationships? That's weird. Why don't you just be a good friend? And... And yet, I think it's weird to ignore this stuff and to just hope that you naturally drift to the outcome you want. Or guess. I mean, part of, you know, in your work, you give very specific guidelines. And this is, 
the new edition 10 years later, and this one actually changed my behavior, thank you. I think I wasn't ready for your first version 10 years ago. And in here, it's a system. So you, the behavior change and the way you change your behavior can be systematic. You don't have to guess. And too often people just go, oh, I'm gonna do whatever. You know, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna meditate for 30 minutes and that I'll reduce my stress. That's really hard to nail that habit. So by following systems and people that have really, really looked hard at how, this is how it works, hopefully, I'm hoping that it gives people step-by-step -step guidance so they can take something as abstract as strengthening my closest relationships and then just work through the steps and then figure out exactly the right new habits to create. And the, the best new habits are the smallest ones with the biggest impact. Okay, smallest with the, David, no, do you wanna raise your hand? David and I named this principle years ago. We called it the feather principle. What's the smallest thing with the biggest impact? And that's what I'm looking for, because if it's small, it's, it's easy and it's nimble and you can do it in a lot of ways, but it's gotta have a lot of impact. And you can systematically figure out what that is. I love that. Okay, we're gonna open it up for questions. So questions about habits, human behavior, and all we're going to ask is that you stand up and speak very loudly uh, as you ask your question. So, yes. It's really a tough one. And that's what my nephew died from. And that was, you know, nine, 10 years ago. And if we could, I don't have the answer. I mean, I think certainly there's, um, there's some stuff in here that I think can help. But I call that kind of habit in here a free fall habit. And I say, look, if you have a, there's uphill habits, there's downhill habits, and there's this free fall habit. If you have a free fall habit, Stop reading the book and go get the right person to help you. Because I don't want to pretend that this is the answer. And I get really, can I be honest here? There is a popular book that came out 10 years ago or so, eight years ago, that says, if you understand, I'll just be, do not quote me on this. If you understand the habit loop, you can change any behavior in your life. That's not true. And he's misleading people by saying that. It's great marketing, but it's not true. Um, and so I, because I've been upset by his statement and what he's done with that and how he's profited financially by misleading people, do not quote me on that. I'm just being honest. I'm so careful in this book not to overstate what it can do. And so let me go, personally, what would I do if I could rewind 10 years? I would go to my family and say, if if we want to save Garrett's life, we need to move him out of Las Vegas. We need to get him new friends in a new location where these drugs are not available. And if we don't do that, we will lose him. So we have to make a decision. We're going to find a place where he can stay alive because he works so hard at it. But when you're in the same context with the same pressures and the same friends, and he's like sober for three months, he has a relapse, he goes back to his old dose, and that kills him. I, you know, that would be my personal, not my scientific work, my personal point of view now. I, we would have to sit down with the family and say, we're gonna lose him unless we do this, so we have to make a decision. It's a hard one, and, I, and if anybody trivializes that problem, I, I don't know of anybody that I consider as the world's expert at addictions. Now, when it comes to creating habits, yeah, I've coached tons and tons of people, and it's relatively simple compared to th these kinds of addictions. So let's not trivialize it, and let's take it seriously and do the best we can. That, sorry, I don't have a complete answer for you. Okay. Thanks for the question. Yes. Can you speak up?
Yeah. I would absolutely. There, uh, Amy, Amy Vest. Who knows Amy Vest in the room? She's awesome. So there's a story about how Amy did this with her daughter who was in fourth grade and kind of flunking out, and she had some learning disabilities. And what she was able to do is figure out what her daughter's aspiration was. And it wasn't doing homework. It was she wanted to keep up with her friends. And so once homework was framed in that way, so here's the homework behavior, and once it aligned to I want to not like be held back in fourth grade, then her daughter got on board with, and they explored tiny habits, how they could make homework a tiny habits. And, um, and then fast forward, happy ending, she graduated with honor. She did great. And she started using some of these, um, I guess, time management skills in other parts of her life. So, but what Amy had to discover is exactly that. What is it that you want, Rachel? What is it that you want? And then she worked from there. Ramit, opinion? Uh, I, I think that's a great story in the book. I love that one. And I also, my dream would be that somehow we would have access to other people and their homes to see how they do it. Because there's a lot of parents whose kids do their homework. And of course, it's a struggle with every parent, but you know, there, there's different, and there's lots of people, for example, if we watched you go into your home in Maui, we would see you doing very subtle behaviors, putting your keys in a certain place, maybe taking your shoes off, maybe doing this. The free, you open the fridge, we know what your fridge looks like, it looks really cool. There's lots of subtle things that masters do, whether they're parents or um, somebody who's not keeping, say, chips in the house. That would be my dream. And, you know, I would, I don't know how you would do it, but having access to go and watch uh, a, a successful parent for just one day and see some of the subtle behaviors they do, because a lot of times they don't even know what they are, but they are okay. profound. Let me respond to that in a way. If I, so, I don't do research with kids, I don't teach kids, but I'm going to share this with you because I think some of you do. If I could design or make a wish and have all fifth graders, that's probably about the right age, maybe fourth, fifth graders learn any skill, it's the skill of celebration. It's to be able to tell themselves, I did a good job. And I think if we could wire that, somebody came to me yesterday and their kid's 13 and he has a celebration but the kid's a little too skeptical at 13, and Chris knows who I'm talking about. But I think if we ta actively taught kids, if you do a behavior that you want to do more often to create a habit, as soon as you do it, say, good for me. It's like, oh, put your sweater away, celebrate. You know, boom, be nice to your sister, celebrate. If we could create a generation of young people that understood that this is how I make good behaviors more likely to happen. I do my celebration, and they'd have to figure out what celebration worked for them. I feel shine, and through shine, I then naturally and easily change my view. That's what I would wish for, for kids. I'll never do it myself, because it's not my thing and my focus, but I put it out there, because I'm thinking some people in this room may be able to start putting that into practice. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Yes. One or two things that you think most people don't do that they would really benefit from doing? Oh, so many. I'll, I'll just, why don't we go back yeah, and forth really it. fast? Yeah. Uh, play musical instrument. No matter how good or bad you are, play a musical instrument. Um, put the five most frequently used things that you use every day in the same exact place. Write thank you notes by hand. Don't feel guilty if you don't answer every email. I need that one. <laughs> I need that one desperately. Um, when you get frustrated with somebody, say inside your head, everybody does the best they can. Nobody tries to screw up. Set an amount of time and money that you want to spend on loved ones every month. A habit that I want to reclaim is I used to make personalized birthday cards for all my cousins. I have like 80 cousins now, so it got a little overwhelming. <laughs> but if I take, if I systematize like for meat and I have like a you know, greeting card factory, I could probably do it. <laughs> okay, we'll stop there. Okay, great question. Uh, any other questions? Okay, yes.
Yeah, I'm going to I'm I'm going to err, err err on the side of caution. Um, I'm not a medical doctor or a psychiatrist. I'm a research scientist that looks at behavior, so I don't know for sure what the answer is for you or other people in the situation. But if you think you may need help, reach out. I mean, there was a, I'll share more. There was a time when I was an undergraduate. And I was coming to grips with the fact that I was gay, which I grew up Mormon, and you can't really be Mormon and gay. That's like <laughs> crashes, and especially back in the day. It was like, are you kidding me? And finally, 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 I reached out to get help, and it was so helpful. And the most helpful thing was my therapist, I'm telling him all my troubles and all these challenges, and he falls asleep during the session. <laughs> And that was game-changing for me. It's like, if he is so bored hearing about this gay boy at BYU, and he's heard it so many times, I'm okay, right? So, that, and it really, not just that, but therapy helped me in a big way. And if I needed to get, I would go back, and I had so much stigma associated with it before I did it, and now I don't. So, reach out, and that would be, Yes, the book will help people, help you feel shine, help you interpret the world in positive ways, create habits. But there are, you know, there are good experts out there, and if it's going that direction, get help. And man, if your therapist falls asleep on you, maybe it will have the same effect it did on me. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, other questions? Uh, yes. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. I had a similar thing with my parents where they had candy dishes all over the house. You could not sit, and they were a pretty big home. There's almost no place you could sit where I can't, you, you're always within reach of a candy dish. So Denny remembers this. I went through the home and I took all the candy dishes and I put them in drawers because it's game over. If you like candy and the candy dishes are this far away, you're going to be eating candy. Now, um, I wasn't super, it's really hard. Don't nag people that you love. That just seems not to work. You know, help them. I mean, really, I mean, when has it ever created a habit in somebody by nagging them? Um, so, you know, when they help people do what they want to do. If, let's say, let's just go with my parents and candy, for example. I mean, it's not as terrible as I make it sound. But if my parents don't want to change the candy habit, start them where they want to start. It might be they want to like paint or draw every day. Great, create that habit. Because what happens if you start people where they want to start, including yourself, then you gain confidence you can change. And those things that were scary, like the sugar addiction that you have, you know, inside, you know, maybe mom's like, oh, there's no way I can get over sugar. I'm addicted. I don't want to admit it. I'm addicted. Well, as she builds confidence and sees she can change in other domains, then the fear of trying to tackle the sugar addiction will reduce, and also her skills of change will increase. So definitely don't nag people you love. Uh, it doesn't work, at least. I mean, I haven't done research on it, but I haven't done <laughs> up. Denny and I have been together about 30 years, and it's worked <laughs> in part because we don't nag each other. And um, start people where they want to start and trust that change will lead to change, and there will be a time when it, Boom, we'll take on 
but redesigning the environment superpower. There's a whole bunch of stuff not in this book. There was so much where they're like, that's another book. That's a different book. No, we don't have room in this book. And it's like, fine, fine, fine. So there's more coming, but I'm happy how much this pulls together. And it's really geared toward everyday people and not businesses, because there's a whole business angle to this that you and others know. Now, we're going to go just a little bit longer, but don't rush out because we brought gifts for you. I brought gifts for you. <laughs> what, Denny? Yes? Which one? Oh. Man. <laughs> Do you know, I've had a big day. I did an NPR interview. I, did, I, I don't remember that story. But anyway, let, let's let Vermeer take a few more questions. Approach Denny. Afterward, he'll tell you the story. What's great, though, is it's really sometimes, sorry, Tim, the simplest of things, if you can find, look for the simplest way to have the biggest impact. And sometimes, if you're not doing a behavior, it's just, what's the, pr I want to and I can, what's going to remind me? And in the tiny habits method, you look for a behavior you already do to act as your reminder. So if you want to floss, brushing is a great behavior to remind you. So after I brush, I'll floss. If you want to do push-ups, in my life, it's peeing. After I pee, I do two push-ups. It sounds wacko, <laughs> but it's totally worked. Um, we'll do a couple more questions. I just want to say, in our company, we have uh, a phrase called A to F, not A to Z. And what does that mean? It means when we start off designing a program, our natural instinct, like we're really good at this particular area. Maybe it's personal finance or starting a business or whatever. So we want to pack it all in, just like you're really good at knowing about fitness, food. And, and if you live in New York City, you kind of absorb some of this information. You go back maybe to the Midwest, and maybe they're not surrounded by the same information you are. So A to Z, that's our tendency. I got to teach them everything. I got to start talking about really complex stuff and they're not there at all. And so when BJ says meet them where they are, we always remember first meet them where they are using the language they use, using the things they want. You know, maybe our parents in the Midwest don't want to look like or use the same words as somebody who lives in Manhattan or is a different age. And so we got to be aware of that. And we also need to remember, uh, like remember when you took a Spanish class in high school or college, you didn't learn how to be fluent in one class. You learn the basic stuff. You could conjugate some verbs and order off a menu, and that was good. A to F, maybe even A to B. But A to Z is a lifetime of work, and so we should always remember to shrink it down. And we, we have another phrase, shrink the field of play, declare victory, and go home. You did a great job. It's like tiny habits. It's tiny habits, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. yeah. That's awesome. Uh, Are we going to take one or two more questions, and we'll have short answers? Yeah. What is the underrated lesson we had to learn when we changed our mindset uh, for the first time? BJ? I don't think you have to raise your hand it, up here. I thank you <laughs> that I don't have to raise my hand. In the Mormon tradition, there is a quote, and I won't quote it, but it's really like, you are here to become perfect. And that, I hope nobody hears Mormon, that was really damaging for me, honestly. So it's like, and so my wake-up was like, I don't have to be perfect. Wow, I can be flawed. I've recorded a special um, preface for my audiobook because when I grew up, I had a voice disability until I was about 18. And I got made fun of and bullied because my voice was really weird. And the reason, and it's still odd, but I recorded the preface in part to say, look, I've applied what I know to be able to narrate this reasonably, and when I make mistakes, you're going to hear it in my voice. Use that as a way to remind yourself that in your quest, you don't have to be perfect. You can still make progress. You can still serve others. So I think letting go of that concept that was drilled into me of you don't have to be perfect and you can still move forward and you're still an okay person, that for me was a big deal, I think. That's, that's really good. Um, my uh, insight was that when I looked at, when I was younger, and, I, you know, when you're in high school, you're kind of taking the same classes and you're talking about the same kind of things. And then as you get older, you diverge into your own path. 
And um, especially growing up Indian, you know, my paths were doctor, engineer, Honda Accord, or Toyota Camry. Like, that's where I, I was going down that route. That's the car I was going to get. And uh, I've ended up in a very, very different place. And looking back, I think it started with really subtly different things. Like, I worked at a pizza place when I was a teenager. None of my Indian peers did that. And that was just such a soft, small way to try something different safely. And then I went to college and I picked a different major than most people, and that was a big deal. But then I, I was strong enough to take that on, and I started a different job, and that was a huge deal. But by that point, I was stronger. And so I think um, true behavioral change and true mastery comes with a series of small steps over time. And you know, you go up a little, you go back down, and then you get a little better and stronger. And so eventually you wake up one day and you can flip a switch, and it's not all these hot emotions like, I'm horrible at this. You're just like, oh, I want to change the way I sleep. I'm going to sleep on my back starting today. Boom. But that's a lifetime of work and focus and mastery. And so um, I don't say that to demoralize anybody, but rather just to say, this is what it's taken for me for 20, 25 years. And it's become my life's work. I think it's your life's work. And um, that's what it looks like. One more question, and then I'll. Are there any techniques that you hear or see coaches or therapists using that conflicts with what the data says? Tons, lots and lots. Um, yeah, it, it, any techniques that people use that conflict with what I see. One is raise the bar. Oh, you've done two push-ups, then do three, then four, then five, then ten, and keep raising the bar. Eventually, you're going to fail. In tiny habits, it's two, and it's always two. And if you want to do more, fine, but that's extra credit. You don't raise the bar. You always keep it tiny. That would be one thing. Um, yeah, there's so many. I mean, the book, in some ways, is framed as a myth buster. Like, here are the myths, and BJ Fogg's going to bust it. That's fine, and it's good for marketing. But I really don't think um, the contribution, I hope, of this is not just busting myths. It's helping people say, yes, you can change. It's easier than you think. And you do it by feeling good, not by feeling bad. And that's what I want to come through, this shine that we learn to feel and generate shine and embrace that and then help others. That's really what I want this to do. That is what, that's the small change that changes everything. It's not you have a bunch of habits. It's this way that your relationship, in some ways, with yourself and your ability to say, I did a good job. And even though I wasn't perfect, man, good for me. I hung in there. It's finding that. Um, so, but there are so few. <laughs> I say this sort of in the book. See, I, sometimes when I say don't quote me, it's because this is already picking a ton of fights. And I expect blowback. And I expect haters. And I have people defacing my wiki page, Wikipedia page already. Um, but I got to call it like I see it. So there's just not that many techniques out there that I really like. I like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. I like motivational interviewing. And after that, it's really hard for me to pick anything that is out there that I think is really solid and works. Uh, there's probably stuff, but those are the things, especially motivational interviewing, I think it's great. And it fits very well with you know, what I've found and so on. And maybe I'll make a nice long list for you. I just don't have it in my head. But just be cautious. The, the world of behavior science and the literature is a mess. It's a mess. It's really hard to study humans. Physical sciences is way easier because you can kind of isolate it. The human sciences and human behavior is really tricky. It's very hard to do it well. And the literature is, it doesn't all add up. It conflicts. It's, it's crazy. Okay, um, I think, uh, BJ, you want to talk about the little gifts? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, like I said, my partner and I, Denny, live part-time in Maui. And in coming here, we, before we left Maui, we went to the quilt store, and I bought these uh, Hawaiian prints and Hawaiian batiks. And they're four times longer, so we cut them in fours. And I thought this might be a good souvenir from this night. So come up to the table and pick the color, pick the one you want, and figure out what meaning it has for you, but something positive, something about your ability to change, your desire to see and celebrate and embrace your tiny successes. 
it's, these are not expensive. Each one is probably worth, I won't tell you, but it's not tons of money. <laughs> but I just wanted to bring it. I really have looked forward to this. Thank you so much for coming. And this could be a bookmark. And um, use this as a symbol and as a reminder of becoming the best version of you. And you don't have to be perfect to be that. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Final words? Thank you, everybody. I think, <laughs> I think we're done here. <laughs>